Hi, folks. Be sure to visit my webpage at dr-history.com for over 440 true stories of the Old West. Also, now available on Amazon, my first book, a historical fiction based on true events entitled Coal Miner to Cowboy. The story of a young man born in England in 1850. He wants to be a cowboy and makes his way to America, travels from New Orleans to Independence on a steamboat, hires on as a teamster to Santa Fe, then on a cattle drive to Bozeman, Montana. He also rides shotgun on a stagecoach. He travels with a wagon train, and on his two-year journey, he meets some famous people and keeps a journal of his adventures. The book contains a lot of the true stories from my podcast and is now available on Amazon. Visit my webpage for a link to Amazon for the book, Coal Miner to Cowboy. Right now, here he is, the one, the only, and there's things to be thankful for, Dr. History. Good morning, Zeb. Hello, buddy. Beautiful day. The it is. The corn's getting uh, harvested. Uh, yeah. You know, and the it seems almost too early, doesn't it? Uh, kind of. You know, the yeah. beets are coming out. Yeah. The spuds. I mean, yeah. I love this time of year. I do, too. Yep. So what's the great uh, bearded one going to have this morning? I'm going to talk to you about the Northern Paiute Indians and a very famous uh, woman by the name of Sarah Winnemucca. And I did a story on her a long, long time ago. That's why I stopped. All of a sudden, it, yeah. it registered yeah, with Sarah me. Sarah Winnemucca. Yeah. And uh, just an amazing, amazing woman, a member of the Northern Paiute tribe. But, you know... Since the earliest days of uh, immigration, California had been kind of surpassed because they thought Oregon was this land of milk and honey. But uh, the uh, there was a guy that wrote in uh, the Immigrant's Guide to Oregon and California. And here's what he said. He said, quote, in my opinion, there is no other country in the known world possessing a soil so fertile and productive with such varied and inexhaustible resources and a climate of such mild uniformity and salubrity, nor is there a country known which is so eminently calculated by nature herself in all respects to promote the unbounded happiness and prosperity of civilized and enlightened man. How many superlatives did you put in that last <laughs> hey, paragraph? That was his words, not mine. Ooh, you talk about flowering it yeah, up. But, you know, the tra- California Trail uh Covered, you know, of course, a lot of the same route as the Oregon Trail, but was more dangerous uh, and less well-traveled. But, you know, right out here, not far from us, Zeb, is where the, uh, at Raft River, is where the Oregon uh, Trail and the California split off over in Raft River. didn't they also split off up at Albion? No. I thought they did. No, the California Trail split off at at, uh, Raft River. And went over through Alamo. Uh, or not uh, Albion. I'm thinking of Alamo. City of Rocks. Oh, yeah. City of Rocks. It was split off there again, didn't it? No, it went through there. Oh, did Through it? the City oh, of Rocks. Okay. Right. right. The California Trail did. Okay. So uh, it was not well traveled and not regarded as... Uh, I guess not as popular as the Oregon Trail mm-hmm. and and going to Oregon. And now keep in mind, uh, in 1845, California was not American. You know, it was Mexican sovereign territory. It was it belonged to the Mexican people. But the California people at that time, they considered the Indian tribes as being, oh, how should you put it? Not very smart. Just kind of. 
to be tolerated. Okay. So one of these tribes was the Northern Paiute. Okay. And traditionally they were a peaceful people. Now, this was kind of surprising. The Paiute did not own horses, and before the arrival of the whites, most of them had never even seen a gun. A You're kidding arm. me. No. And they were instead brilliantly well adapted to surviving in some of the harshest and most inhospitable terrain in North America. They had expert knowledge of how to trap, how to gather wild food, including desert rodents and insects, and most importantly, how to extract edible roots and bulbs from the land. The early settlers gave them kind of a derogatory term. They called them the diggers. Really? I've heard that. Yeah, the diggers, because they ate roots and and lived off the land. Well, because their tribe was not uh, with any mode of transportation, they must have stayed within a certain small area. Exactly. More than than to the Nevada area, northern Nevada area. But uh, so Sarah Winnemucca, she wrote a book. Okay, one of the only uh, Native American women to actually write a book. Really? And so I'm going to quote some of the things from her book that I I find very interesting. So here's what she says. I was a very small child when the first white people came into our country. And uh, again, she was a tribe, the Northern Paiute uh, tribe. And she says, they came like a lion, yes, like a roaring lion, and have continued so ever since, and I have never forgotten their first coming. So uh, she was born around 1844, is what uh, they figure. You know, back then they didn't exactly know what year. That was my next question. Yeah. Yeah. So the northern Paiute roamed over a big area of what is now northern Nevada, parts of eastern California and southern Oregon. So that whole area, kind of the Owyhee area, Mm -hmm. you know, who we're talking about. But uh, so a lot of this uh, area fell in the path of what would uh, become the California Trail. I see. So Sarah, whose tribal name was Thokamentni. Oh, please, don't do it again. Don't do it again. (laughs) Meaning shell flower. I'm not going to repeat that. Just say shell flower. Shell shell flower. We're going to call her Sarah. (laughs) But she would go on to achieve a lot of things in her life, becoming a lecturer, a teacher, a U.S. Army interpreter, and most importantly, a tireless campaigner for the rights of her people, and the author of what is thought to be the first autobiography ever written by a Native American woman woman. Really? But her childhood was spent leading, of course, the traditional life of her people. Did she, where did she go to school? Um, as things went along, she, she just, uh, I don't know that it, I know exactly where she went to school to learn English and learn how to write, but she had help. She met the right people at the right time. My, my. But she wrote a book called Life Among the Paiutes, and uh, it describes her childhood. Uh, and, and growing up. So what surprises me about you saying that she wrote a book, she was born in approximately 1844. Right. Yeah. So at the age of 30, uh, she would it would have been 1874. Right. Right at the height of many of the great Indian wars across our country. And it's interesting to me that she would write a book. Right. And she, it may have been in later years that she did. This. I see. It okay. could have been after the right. a lot of the conflicts I see. were settled. Okay. But Sarah Sarah's father was a spiritual leader who had the ability to to charm antelope. 
Oh, this ought to be good. You're going to like this. Okay. So in the winter, when the antelope moved in the herds, he would take a drum and then mark out a special circle around which wigwams would be placed. Okay, you got the picture? Yeah. Leaving only one small opening around this circle. Okay. Okay. Two men holding torches made of sagebrush would be sent out as messengers to the antelope. Messengers. To the antelope. I see. The women, children, and old men would sit with Sarah's father while he played his drum. And here's what she said, quote, We were told to keep thinking about the antelope all the time and not to let their thoughts go away to anything else. Uh huh. On the fifth day, the antelopes were charmed. And the whole herd followed the tracks of my people and entered the circle, coming in at the entrance, bowing and tossing their heads and looking sleepy under a powerful spell. Well, no wonder they were sleepy. They got sick of listening to the drums. (laughs) They ran around and round inside the circle, just as if there was a fence all around it and they could not get out. And they stayed there until all my people had killed all the antelope. For food. Well, man, here they got charmed to come in there. <laughs> and then, they and then one antelope looks at the other one and said, I think, Bert, we made a mistake. <laughs> Should it, shouldn't have come in here. Now, here's what's interesting. But if anybody had dropped anything or had stumbled and not told about it, then when the antelopes came to the place where he had done that, that threw off the spell and the antelope rushed wildly out of the circle. So it was a very meticulous Ceremony, and if somebody made a mistake, the antelope would be gone. So, it's is it true that you tried this on your front lawn? <laughs> I haven't had any antelope. <laughs> so, in their creation myth, this is pretty interesting. The, the Paiute believed that at the beginning of the world, there were four children, two white and two dark. At first, they were a happy family, but eventually, they began to quarrel. Their parents were very much grieved by this and decided to separate them. So the light girl and boy disappeared and their parents saw them no more. Again, this is from Sarah's book. The Paiute believed that the white nation that had grown up from those two children would one day send an emissary to them to, quote, heal all the old trouble. Oh, my. Okay. So that's that was their myth, their legend. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So when the first white settlers appeared among them, the tribe and Sarah's grandfather uh, greeted them with joy. And just like down in Mexico, you know, when uh, the conquistadors came in, you know, but here's what she said. My people were scattered at that time over nearly all the territory known as Nevada. Sarah would recall, quote, my grandfather was chief of the entire Paiute nation and was camped near Humboldt Lake with a small portion of his tribe when a party was seen coming. When the news was brought to my grandfather, he asked what they looked like. When told that they had hair on their faces and were white, he jumped up and clasped his hands together and cried aloud, my white brothers, my long looked for white brothers have come at last. Oh, my. So. Again, this was a legend that they yeah. thought, you know, this is great. This is the coming of our brothers that are coming back. Hmm. Okay? So he took some of his men and went to the settlers camp. And here's what she says, quote, arriving near them, he was commanded to halt in a manner that was readily understood without an interpreter. 
Despite her grandfather's signs of friendship, he threw down his robe and put his hands up to show that he was not carrying any weapon. They refused to allow him to approach. Uh oh. They. Uh, the white yeah, men. Yeah. Okay. So don't ev- lose me here. Evidently, they were afraid of the Indians. I see. Okay. And he knew not what to do. He had expected so much pleasure in welcoming his white brothers to the best in the land. And after looking at them sorrowfully for a while, he came back to quite camp quite unhappy. And, and he de- never had a chance to meet them? No, not that group. Oh. But it gets a little better. So undeterred, Sarah's grandfather and his men followed the immigrant party for several days, camping near them at night and traveling inside of them by day, hoping in this way to gain their confidence. But he was disappointed. Poor dear old soul, Sarah recalled. I can imagine his feelings, she added, for I have drunk deeply from the same cup. I see. In other words, she found the same situation. Yeah. So, but then it gets a little bit better. The next year, a second immigration uh, passed through northern Paiute territory, and they too camped near Humboldt Lake. With them, Sarah's grandfather would have more success. And here's what she said. During their stay, my grandfather and some of his people called upon them, and they all shook hands. And when our white brothers were going away, they gave my grandfather a white tin plate. It was so bright, she recalled. They say that after they left, my grandfather called for all his people to come together, and he showed them the beautiful gift which he had received from his white brothers. Everybody was so pleased, nothing like it was ever seen in our country before. You'll like this. My grandfather thought so much of it that he bored holes in it and fashioned it on his head and wore it as a hat. Well, that's a real interesting use. Okay. He held it. He didn't wear that out in the electric storm, did he? No, he held it in as much admiration as my white sisters hold their diamond rings or sealskin jacket. Oh, my. He really was pleased. Yeah. Well, the following spring, more, quote, white brothers arrived. Among them were two mysterious figures. Now, this is an interesting description. See if you can uh, get this. They were burning all in a blaze describing these people okay when sarah's grandfather asked for more details he was told that quote it looked like a man it had legs and hands and a head but the head had quit burning and it was left quite black they were the greatest excitement among my people everywhere about the men in blazing fire Wow. It was only much later that this mysterious apparition was revealed to be two African-Americans wearing red shirts. Really? So imagine, Zeb, they had never seen an African-American. Yeah. How would you describe them? They're like something that had been burned and was left black. You know what you just said there, though, is that part of the mythology of what takes place in Nevada every year, uh, the Burning Man? Uh Uh-huh. I don't know if that has anything to do with this. Well, I I thought I'd ask. I don't... You're supposed to know everything. I know, and I'm just going to say I don't think so. Okay. Just guessing. That shut me up. (laughs) Okay. So the following autumn, yet more settlers came in still, you know, in more numbers. And she says, quote, it was at this time that our white brothers first came among us. Sarah Winnemucca wrote, they could not get over the mountains, so they had to live with us. You call my people blood seeking, she went on. My people did not seek to kill them, nor did they steal their horses. No, no, far from it. 
During the winter, my people helped them. They gave them such as they had to eat. They did not hold out their hands and say, you can't have anything to eat unless you pay me. No, no, such word was used by us uh, uh, savages at the time. So they were a kind people and generous people. Very generous. Yeah. Yeah. So for all the help that the Paiute had given the settlers, it was not long before the tide began to turn against them. Slowly, with each passing immigration, they began to realize that these so-called white brothers had no very brotherly feelings toward them. Even her grandfather, who had become known to settlers as Captain Truckee, you've heard of Truckee Lake, yeah. over by uh, yeah. where the Donner Pass is. Right. He began to have his doubts when he saw the leader of one of the trains whipping, and I'm going to quote this, folks, okay, whipping the Negroes who were driving his team. Oh, my. That made my grandfather feel very badly. Yeah. Well, anyway, Sarah's first sightings of white people filled her with terror. Uh, it was their appearance that seemed so strange to the Paiute children. The whites were not like humans, she wrote, but more like owls than anything else. They had hair on their face and had white eyes and looked beautiful. Soon, frightening stories began to calculate that would not only add to her fear. So here's what she says. The following spring, there was great excitement among my people on account of fearful news coming from different tribes that the people whom they called their white brothers were killing everybody that came in their way. And all the Indian tribes had gone into the mountains to save their lives. There was a fearful story they told us children. Our mothers told us that the whites were killing everybody and eating them, so we were all afraid of them. Every dust that we could see blowing in the valley, we would see was white people. Now, this is kind of kind of amazing story she has right here. She says, what a fright we all got one morning to hear some white people were coming. Everyone ran as best they could. My aunt overtook us, and she said to my mother, let us bury our girls, or we shall all be killed and eaten up. So they went to work and buried us and told us if we heard any noise not to cry out, for they did not, for they did what they they would surely kill and eat us. So our mothers buried me and my cousin, planted sagebrushes over our face to keep the sun from burning them, and there we were left all day. Oh, my. So they were buried up to their neck. Buried alive. Yeah, but their heads were sticking yeah, out. Yeah, but still, I mean, yeah, how would you yeah. like to have your head sticking yeah. out and a rattlesnake decides so, to come up underneath that brush? So she continues, can anyone imagine my feelings buried alive, thinking every minute that I was to be unburied and eaten by the people that my grandfather loved so much? With my heart throbbing and not daring to breathe, we lay there all day. It seemed that night would never come. At last we heard some whispering. We did not dare to whisper to each other, so we lay still. I could hear their footsteps coming nearer and nearer. I thought my heart was coming right out of my mouth. Then I heard my mother say, "'Tis right here. Oh, can anyone in this world ever imagine what were my feelings when I was dug up by my poor mother and father?' You know, now here's the general thinking I had after you relating that story. This was a very peaceful tribe of Indians. Very yes, peaceful. Yes. And they had no animosity against anybody, the way it sounds. Exactly, even other tribes. Even other tribes. So why in the world, the question would be, did the whites and, quite frankly, the blacks that went through that area, why did they want to do them harm? I, I think the reputation of just the word Indian. I see was enough to think that every Indian was the same. 
Yeah. So anyway, she goes on. She says, but there was worse news to come. While they were hiding out in the mountains, the people that my grandfather had called our white brothers came along to where our winter supplies were. They said everything we had left on fire. It was a, it was a fearful sight. It was all we had for the winter, and it was all burnt during that night. My father took some of his men during the night to try and save some of it, but they could not. It had burned down before they uh, got there. Makes no sense. Okay, this party of settlers were the last to come through the northern Paiute territory that year. The whole band of white people perished in the mountains for it was too late to cross them. Sarah Winnemucca remembered, we could have saved them, only my people were afraid of them. We never knew who they were or where they came from, so poor things, they must have suffered fearfully the Donner Party. Oh, my. I knew that's what you were yeah. going to say. Uh, by the way, real quick, I'm out of time, but yeah. was her last name the adaptation to the city, Winnemucca? Yeah, that's where yeah. that's where that came from. And I, I don't know where the name Winnemucca came from other than it was a northern Paiute wow. name. That's interesting. Yeah. I'd like to do more on that. I really would. Yeah, that's Sarah Winnemucca. And it's sad. They were such a peaceful people. Yeah, and there were other tribes that were very peaceful, yeah. that were not warlike uh, tribes, that were all considered the same, unfortunately. Ladies and gentlemen, there he hit a home run out of the park again, uh, Dr. History.